Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, category is UK True Crime Realness. Hi guys, welcome to episode 34 of Slaughter. Just bringing the numbers back. I'm Lucy. (laughs) And I'm Emma. And for those of you that follow us on Instagram, I'm sorry to say that Mortimer has passed. I did everything I could. I miss Mortimer. So for those of you that don't follow us on Instagram, uh, why not? Yeah. Um, but I found a mouse and I thought it was horrid and I screamed a lot. And then when I picked him up, he was alive and I fell in love. And then he died and I cried. It was a real roller coaster of emotions for a Thursday night. It was more than I was ready for. Um, so I'm starting today. And it was quite apt when I was researching this because I got a little knock on the door. Ex-convict selling stuff, going around houses. I didn't know they just still did that. Oh, yeah, for the dusters and stuff. Yeah. I was chatting to him, and I was so desperate to ask him about life in prison. And if he'd known any famous people, if he comes back, I'm definitely going to ask him. Did you ask him what he did? Um, No. I thought maybe there was a rule against that. I think so. I was just imagining what you being really like, itching <laughs> to talk to him about it. Really was. But it made me think of... Um, someone on a Facebook group that we followed uh, this week said, if you listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, does it make you more scared of things? And I was thinking, not really. God, it makes me morbidly fascinated. But it doesn't make me more nervous in everyday life. Yeah, I don't think I'm... I don't have, you know, delusions of grandeur that anyone would actually want to murder me. <laughs> no. Nobody likes me or hates me enough to want to kill me so far. Bad things happen, I think, but it's not... I feel like these are rarities. I don't think this is... A lot of bad things are happening. I mean, our group is evidence of that because everyone's got a story. But also, it doesn't make me more scared. I like to think that we're not advocates of being really scared and anxious. but advocates Oh yeah, we're not of, trying to freak people out. Yeah. We want you to live your lives. Don't put yourself in stupid situations. But also, don't go around scared of everything. If anything, it tells you is that it can happen for the bizarrest of reasons to any kind of person so there's no point worrying about it what will be will be yeah like if you're gonna get murdered then panicking isn't gonna stop it yeah but don't go out and do stupid stuff that will put you in a dodgy situation just yeah i just i don't want to live my life scared of everything yeah we're not worried about it yeah like i said i really don't think i'm a target no i'm just so maybe it's because we're white british girls that's the white privilege isn't it yeah okay anyway on that note, I'm going to do a white man murdering people as is... His privilege. <laughs> yeah, our, our generic case. So, Stephen Farrow, 
is uh, my case this this week. I'm going to bring in some psychology as we go along with this because I don't think I've mentioned a lot of psychology and it actually feeds in quite well to this case. So I hope you're all right with that. If not, I'll fix it in the edit. That's free education. You are a psychology teacher after all. But the mantra is fix it in the edit. Born in 1964, he was the youngest of six children and he was born in Birmingham and he was pretty hyperactive as a child. In fact, on his first day of school, he was sent home for bad behaviour. On the first day? On the first day. Imagine that. What a quitter that teacher was. I know, that's what I was thinking. That means you, like, less than six hours with that child. You're like, nope, giving up. Like, unless they've stabbed someone, I wouldn't send them home. But then this was old school days where they didn't accommodate first year. Yeah, but they could smack them, surely. Yeah. Done. So he was rough from the off. Like he was hard work. His mother actually said she always knew there was something wrong with him. And I mean, that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know. But I'm say if you're going to treat him that way. Yeah. She said he never slept properly. And she, she had five kids first than him. And she said she'd rather have had another five kids like her other kids over again than had the one that was Stephen Farrow. So she'd rather have had 10 kids than six with him being one. She's not an advocate of unconditional love, is she? <laughs> Definitely not. So at the age of 10, Farrow set fire to a church altar and he watched it burn. He also spent his childhood hurting animals. Oh, here we go. He's he's a serial killer then. Well. He's an actual, he's got, he's a psychopath. Yeah. Like a diagnosable psychopath. He Bedwetting. would set fire to, right, maybe, I mean, he didn't sleep well. Maybe that's why. He's just rolling in his own piss all the time. Um, he'd also set fire to rags and put them through old women's letterboxes as well. He hated his father throughout his teenage years, who was a strong disciplinarian, but he loved his mother. She's not so keen on you. No. I don't want to be the one to break it to you, but <laughs> this is a little bit one-sided. She probably hates you. But she wishes you were dead. If you don't know about it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the, the Oedipus complex. Okay. And if you do know, you know what's coming. So Freud had a theory that children around puberty start to want to shag their parents, but specifically the one that's not your gender. So I would have wanted to sleep with my dad. You would have wanted to sleep with your dad. My brother would have wanted to sleep with my mum. Because they can't have sex, uh, because they want to have sex with their parents, they start to hate the same sex parent. And then once they start to identify with the same sex parent, they stop wanting to shag their other parent and just get on with their lives. And then they get on with life. I mean, Freud was insane. Um, well, oh yeah, he's crazy. Yeah. I went to the Freud Museum in London, which was in his house where he lived and everything. Loads of his furniture. Really cool. I'd visit. But there was one room where it goes through all these different case studies and then what his conclusion mm. were. And there is no logical steps from what he said what what the patient said to what he got to it was like there was one where it's like so there was a woman and she kept having dreams about being in a box and she felt like she was in a box under it was dark possibly underground and she was terribly frightened she's allergic to strawberries I was like what, what? i don't know if that was the exact I would have one thought he'd it, argue that she wanted to regress to being in the womb and couldn't face adulthood. It was it was nothing like it. it wasn't weird. It wasn't anything to do with the womb. It wasn't anything to do with being buried alive. He just was <laughs> like, I think she wants to have sex with someone. <laughs> yeah, I think it's me. Uh, yeah, I think it's me. I think they all want to have sex. I with think me. I think the darkness is your vagina, and in this case, you are my penis. Shall we make it happen? <laughs> um, but also, 
in terms of theories regarding mothers, there's there's the theory of the schizophrenic mother, which is associated with schizophrenia, which says that over-involved mothers and a closest and a bit of a weird relationship with the mother results in schizophrenia, which I always think of Ed Gein when I think of that. Him wanting to resurrect his mother and be her best friend. There's a show on one of those channels like it's like really or id or one of those ones but they're doing a series on killers and their mums mm. and I, i'm not gonna watch it but someone who watches tv might be interested there's also a theory called the diathesis stress model that would say that you are you can be predisposed to a condition and then that's your diathesis for a condition and then stresses would mean that two people might have the same diathesis. Or like a stress trigger. Yeah, so two people could have the same diathesis in that they're the same disposition towards schizophrenia, but if one's got stresses and one's got not got stresses, the one with the stress will end up getting um, schizophrenia. But stresses are like things like biological things, but also stress in your Trauma. life. Yeah. Sort of like the thing where they say that a lot of there's a lot of people in high-powered business jobs who are actually psychopaths. But, but psych- psychopathy wouldn't work for that. You got it or you haven't. Right. But diathesis stress model wouldn't work for like schizophrenia or maybe. So it's in like you don't present depression. that until the stress yeah. thing. And he smoked a lot of cannabis, which would move him forward. That's a stressor. That's something biological that he's doing. stress me. <laughs> and also, he, um, he lost his brother quite young as well. Yeah, that's worse. So. There's certain things that might have resulted in him. Now, if he has schizophrenia, that would work. If he's got a personality disorder, that's different because a psychotic disorder would be different from a personality disorder. So Farrow's first conviction was in 1979, um, age 15, and he was convicted of burglary. And he was placed on probation for arson as well three years later. Now, I had a look into what burglary was because I'm not great with those terms burglary it turns out is if you unlawfully enter somewhere and you intend to commit a crime so it's not necessarily taking stuff oh. it's like if you went in and moved shit around a bit and then left that's burglary as so well so like when my mum comes in my house and tidies during the yeah, week she's burgling you whereas theft is taking someone's property and robbery is taking someone's property by four 1979 age 15 oh yeah that's the same year that his brother died oh. that he started committing burglaries so in 1988, he was given a partially suspended sentence for theft and deception. So more criminal My favourite one. Deception. 1993, he was jailed for another four years for burglary, theft and deception. Again, the whole three. And as part of this sentence, he was allowed on home leave. Now this is when he's Third died. time. If you, like, three strikes and you get to go home. <laughs> That's Three the strikes and we're sick of you. So during this time... First day of prison. Send him home! Uh, during this time, he went into the home of widow Stella Crow. Oh, so he wasn't uh, even, like, using his time to relax at home. No, he's still on jo- on the job. Work ethic. Um, he stole a jar with £26 worth of change in it, but instead of just burglarising her this time, he left Stella with two black eyes, slashed her hands, and a missing tooth. I'm assuming that's from a punch rather than stealing. Like, I'll just Depends if it was one of those that was on a little plate. That just happened to have a, a historic tooth on the side. No, like, you know the ones where you have a false oh. tooth, but you have, like, the whole little palette of the I thought you had, like, an ornament. Like, no, my dad has one of those, and if you watch him closely when he's eating, like, you can see it moving. 
gross. It's horrid. It makes me hate him. A wooden plate? It's not a plate. No, not a plate. Like, it's like a, the shape of the roof of your mouth. Oh. And it's clear. And then it's got one tooth attached and you just shove it up there. Oh. You can use dental glue. My dad chooses not to for reasons only known to himself. <laughs> so... Stella had previously been Faro's I need to get more friends. I keep talking about my parents all the time. We both do. Someone at work the other day was like, do you live at home? I was like, I've not lived at home for 10 years. (laughs) Like, I don't know what to tell you. No, I'm just always (laughs) around there. Yeah. I just love my mum and dad. (laughs) Okay, so Stella had been Faro's former landlady. And prior to his prison sentence, he'd lived at her house. So, so he knew her. That's yeah. extra horrid. Awful. And, I don't know why, but it is. Um, do you think slashing the hands, do you think it came from I think her defense, defending yeah. herself, putting her hands up? She later spoke out about this and said that he probably was intending to kill me. So he admitted to these crimes and he was given another eight years in prison. So he's getting a lot older by this point. He's done a lot of crime, but he's been away for a lot of his life. Now, during the court case, the defence spoke about Farrow's dark side and um, suggested Faro had a psychopathic disorder and needed treatment. But if it was a personality disorder, you don't get treatment for that. It doesn't work. Because counselling, a psychopath will just play along and they can just convince you that they're getting better. But you can't really talk someone into understanding empathy who hasn't got it. Yeah. Whereas schizophrenia, you can maybe challenge their delusions. So there's two different, a bit of difference there. Um, at this point, it's looking more like he's got um, antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy. They're basically the same thing. So while serving his time for Mrs. Crow's attack, he also sent her niece a crucifix and told her he'd he'd contracted cancer in prison. So really weird behaviour. Um, he also started getting really into religion and telling everyone that he'd found religion and making friends with loads of religious people. But it later transpired that throughout his childhood and in his adulthood, he hated religion. He was incredibly anti-religious. He hated people um, who followed religion. I mean, you've got him burning a church altar as a child. And this is something that followed him. They give you a lot of attention though, don't they? Yeah. Like sometimes it's nice to join a religion because everyone's really interested in you. Yeah. But also... bullshit. Later on when he was living homeless... Like, the churches were pretty good to him. Like, they gave him a lot of stuff and help and support. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, if you want to play them, yeah, they're, but, they're ready to be played. But he definitely saw it as, I'm using them and I'm getting yeah, one over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So doctors worked with Farrow when he was in um, hospital and concluded that he could not form relationships and he had violent thoughts. Not even with Jesus. Not even with Jesus. You do not have a friend in Jesus. He was using Jesus. To its own end. You have an acquaintance at best. <laughs> he spoke out about having violent thoughts about sex, bestiality, rape. Just a total shit, really. Prison's probably quite fun for him then. Yeah. He also revealed that he'd had the urge to kill people since the age of 13. And he claimed that he had assaulted a disabled boy um, when he was 13 and they were 8. But he also said that he'd been abused by a priest when he was age 11 and they'd touched him up. Which is possible, but he was also a compulsive liar. So, possible, but probably, I'd say, improbable. Farrow continued to be in and out of prison throughout his 20s and 30s and 40s. And he claimed that he killed a backpacker in 2006 
but there's no evidence to support that. Now, this is when it starts getting grim. Late 2011, so pretty recent, Farrow broke into the home of Betty Yates, a retired teacher, which I'm sure is a character from My Dad Wrote a Porno. Betty Yates. It sounds old woman name forthcoming. <laughs> so um, she was 77 and she lived in Thornbury. He he um, broke into the house and then he put a note on the kitchen table saying, be thankful you didn't come back or we would have killed you. You Christian scum. I hate God. So just getting his feelings out. Yeah. He could have just gone on Tumblr. I'm going to say, like, fair, like, that note's not reaching many people, least of all God. <laughs> yeah. You need to do something really good. So he also texted his friend, Michaela Roswell, at this time, and said the church must suffer. Maybe he was abused. Maybe. Um, and he also said, keep an eye on the news. You don't know how disturbed I am. Now, Michaela later spoke out about her, like, how she knew him. And she said she'd met Farrow when she was helping working with the homeless at church in Dorset. And he had come in and he'd been fed by the church. And he was known for having mood swings. He was known for being violent towards other people who were living a homeless life. Um, He'd also spoken out about his hatred of the church and how he thought they were um, terrible and Christians were terrible. But while getting free food from them. See, now I'm swinging towards schizophrenia again. No, I think it's personality disorder. But only because... I mean, I don't think that's a... Del- is that a delusion? It's not really a delusion, having an intense hatred, is it? Of people that are being nice to you. But he's being accurate, because he's saying they're being nice to me, but I still hate them. 2nd of January, Farrow travelled to Canterbury, and he planned to kill Archbishop Rowan Williams. Oh, I know him. Do you? From the TV. So I think he must have been doing some sort of public speaking, but then he said... I'm not friends with... Sorry, it's just a name I recognised to clear that up. Well, normally it's just a litany of names in these stories that I'm like, okay, okay. No, a real person. (laughs) This is reality. Yeah, it's true crime. So what did he have to say to Rowan? He wanted to kill him. Oh. But, (laughs) But he was put off by the level of security at the event. Yeah. Thought probably not worth my time. I'm going to target old ladies in the houses instead. So 4th of January, 2012, he went back to see Betty Yates. And Betty Yates lived in an isolated cottage by a river. Sounds beautiful. She had an active social life. She was a lovely woman. She'd been a well-respected teacher. And he coldly beat her with a walking stick that she owned. And then he stabbed her four times in the head and the in neck. the head. Head and neck. I always think the head's the worst place of the stabbing, but also a difficult one to do. How do you stab someone in the head? It's like trying to stab a bowling ball. Like, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, there's not a lot of soft things to I don't know purchase. what you would... Oh, shall we practice? Your head's quite good at taking a lot of... Battering. Yeah. But the neck, obviously, is not quite so robust. He left the knife sticking out of her neck. Oh, God. He then placed a pillow under her head and then left. So, senseless killing. Um, the police found Betty Yates' body and they launched a murder inquiry. Now, 16 days after the murder, two anonymous letters were sent to the police. These 
haven't been released so I don't really know what's in them other than it just gave the police some more information but they were desperate for the people who wrote them to come forward with more and they offered a £10,000 reward if they did to encourage the writers to come forward but they also featured the crime on Crime Watch and callers phoned in they reported seeing a silver Audi at the house now this is um, an instant- fuck off as he got an Audi yeah. he's been homeless for years wasn't his so, and, I mean, he could have nicked it though that's what criminals do could have done but he didn't got the train so they did arrest someone but released them on bail but it wasn't Farrow because crime watch is not the be all and end all sometimes people don't know shit about shit on the 14th of February Valentine's Day Farrow went to the home of a Reverend John Sudard and he stabbed the vicar seven times as he died... One for each of his horcruxes. Of his what? Horcruxes. Like What's Voldemort. This is a Harry Potter reference. It's an object that you split, your, you split your soul into two and you hide it in an object and Voldemort did it seven times because seven is the strongest number and you have to kill all the horcruxes in order to kill the actual person. You said this was an educational episode. I'm just teaching you a few things. So I'm teaching them psychology. You're teaching them Harry Potter. Yep. <coughs> And as he died... That's the difference between secondary and primary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and PowerPoint. So as he died, he shouted, hurry up and die. Heartless, thoughtless. He didn't have any empathy for this man. Uh, he then placed a picture of Jesus and a mirror on the floor by the body. And he placed a Bible open to the letter of Jude on his chest. Okay, he then scattered items around John's body, including gay pornography, party streamers, and condoms. I mean, if he'd just stayed in with those things, he might have had a better time of it. I'm going to say, at least, you know, have the party first. (laughs) You also put items of... Might have put him in a less murdery mood. Bit of nookie, few streamers, party poppers on the go. Well, he also watched Indiana Jones on the telly after... Like, all of these things would have been lovely with the vicar. Yeah. You'd have had a great time. You also put items of food around the halls and threw green soup on the walls. I fucking hope it was soup. (laughs) What else could it be? Ectoplasm? Green bile? Uh... So, following the murder, it was... People found this grotesque. He then sat and watched Indiana Jones on, um, in the house and drank the beer that belonged to the vicar. Um, he finally used John's phone to text R.I.P. Mr. Suddard, pervert. Now, there isn't any evidence of this vicar being linked to Farrow. Um, so, I mean, I initially thought well, maybe he was the one who potentially abused him, but there isn't any evidence of that. And actually, they were he wasn't that much older than, than um, Farrow. Right. So it just couldn't have happened. Now, Tim Giles... Um, went to John's home with a spare key because he was going to let a plumber in and they knocked on the door and because they saw that all the curtains were closed, it was the middle of the day and also there were blankets placed over the windows. They let themselves in, saw John's body. Farrah had already left by this point, so he wasn't caught in the house. John Suddard's sister has spoken out about John and obviously for them it was awful because of they'd lost a family member but also... Because he'd put all these items around him and said things like pervert that made it into the press. Mm. And that must have been all the more upsetting. Because there's many people who know these have been placed there 
there'll be another amount of people who are like, well, clearly he wouldn't have done it unless there was yeah. a reason. Um, John Sutter's sister spoke out about John saying he was a good man, loved by the community. The church held a service in his honour. Hundreds of people attended it. So he had a lot of support and, and love from the community. And following the murder, police asked for information about a man who was seen outside the church that John had worked at. Again, I don't think it was related. I don't think it was Faro. Um, but they still didn't know who it was. Now, a woman that Farrow had been staying with, I don't know in what sense, because he lived almost like a vagrant. He travelled around and he was homeless. But he'd been staying at her house. Maybe he'd just come across her and she'd just been a nice person and said, you can stay over if you want. But she came forward and she spoke to the police and then Farrow was named as a suspect. Farrow was subsequently arrested for the murder of John. Now, police immediately began trying to link Farrow also to Betty's murder. They'd happened in the same area and they knew there was probably a link. So they did do this, first of all, because of the burglary in the home. Obviously, they've got also handwriting. He's a known burglar. Burglar? Burglar. And um, so he was charged with both murders. At trial... Farrow denied killing Betty, but admitted to the murder of John Studdard. But he said, How "Weird, yeah." But he said he wanted it to go down as manslaughter because he wasn't in his right mind. So, in preparation for the trial, it had to be identified if Farrow was mentally ill and fit for trial, and he was found to be fit for trial. Um, and they stated that a personality disorder seemed the most likely issue, right. but that's not the same as insanity. Right. And if it had been schizophrenia and delusions, then probably he would have gone to Broadmoor instead. But because it was a personality disorder and he knew what he'd done and he knew who he was visiting at the time he went, then it wasn't the same. He also admitted to preparing for John's murder for five well, he days. Must they obviously yeah. like, went and bought the porno magazines. Yeah. Which, this is quite recent. Who gets porn in a magazine these days? No one. Like, that's the dying industry. Yeah videos i mean still you're not buying a dvd surely nope no you're going on the website he admitted to preparing for john's murder for five days visiting john's home before the murder and looking up bus routes to commit the murder um he claimed that he heard voices but there was no evidence of this people didn't believe him um he also said that initially he'd wanted to crucify the vicar but they and he had got the tools to do that but in the moment, he just decided against it. Forensic evidence was also found, because obviously they couldn't just take it as, oh, he's the most likely person. Um, and Farrow had been wearing walking boots when he was arrested, and blood on the walking boots matched the vicar's. If the sound is different in this room, apologies, we've had to divert. To the airing cupboard. <laughs> We're in the airing cupboard. Because... My next door neighbour decided that now was the time to have Bruno Mars playing loud enough to make your ears bleed. Farrow's DNA was also found on the cap of an empty beer bottle found at John's home. I was surprised it wasn't where he was drinking out of it. Yeah, on the cap. But it's hard to open those caps. If you've got a bottle opener, you're using your hand. And your mouth, apparently. Pull your skin off. Which doesn't have to be mouth DNA, does it? This could be skin DNA. It's a party trick. Opens them with his butthole. Maybe. I bet there's someone that can do that. Yeah. In Thailand, I'm going to have a look. 
if it's going to be anywhere, it's going to be a show in Thailand. So CCTV was shown placing Furrow in the village and um, on the day of the murder. So Furrow's boots also had a pattern on the bottom mm-hmm. that was quite specific. And they found those in... Do when you tread on something, it leaves like a dusty imprint sometimes? Yeah. All the time. Footprint. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Show a footprint. Have you heard of a footprint? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, there was a footprint of his boot on the exercise mat at Betty Yates' home as well. And um, a couple who'd been walking by Mrs Yates' house on the day of the murder also described seeing a man walking past as if he was on a mission. He had somewhere to be. And they picked Farrow out of a uh, group of photographs and said, it's him. Now, Farrow refused to attend the trial, which I didn't know you could do. Just like, yeah, I'm not going. I didn't think you could not show up. Yeah, I apparently. Thought, they well, did it with someone He must him. be on bail. Oh, wait, you said he's on bail. Well, he was arrested, and I guess he was being held. He must have been on bail. Otherwise, if he's in custody, surely they drag yeah. him along. No, he was in custody because he's like, no, I'll stay in this prison, thanks. So he said, I'm not going, which I didn't know you were given the option, but they carried it on I without didn't. him. They're like, fine, see you later. So they had enough evidence without him even being there to, to sort it out. Um, I know you can refuse to speak. Yeah. Like, refuse to testify, but I don't think you could yeah. refuse to show up. Refuse to go? Surely not, because every fucker has always been there. Is it because they normally want to know what they're saying about him, though? Maybe. I probably Maybe he just doesn't go. care. That's the thing. Would he just care if no, he's not. I'd go. If well, I'd, I'd done go. it, if I'd done it, I might not go. If I hadn't done it, I'd definitely go. He obviously just doesn't give a shit if he's in prison or not, does he? I mean, he pleaded not guilty. So he always thought there was a chance. He said guilty of manslaughter and not guilty to the other one. He was found guilty of both. Um, unanimous for the murder of Sudards and 11 to 1 majority for the murder of Mrs Yates. And he was given life, meaning life. So he might be in your book. Oh, if you love. Exciting. Um... Now, this year is the most recent evidence about this case, and he attempted to appeal his sentence, and they overruled that and said, you're going to stay in here till you die, basically. So he's got no mm. chance of getting out now. So, terrible from birth. Mm. The clergy of the country are at last safe. I think if his mum could have, she would have just shoved him back in, done a Freud on him, and be like, nope, regression for you. But instead, he became a hideous murderer, but thankfully not a serial killer, technically. I think if he'd been allowed to stay out, he probably would have committed more crimes, oh, for yeah, sure. Definitely. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Come to the borough. Tales from the Airing Cupboard, part two. So, I'm going to do a story about a woman named Marguerite Farney. Now, she is French. Her husband... You loved French, bitch. ...was Egyptian. And they lived around. But the murder took place in the UK. And the trial took place in the UK. She was born Marguerite Alibert in 1890. Um, but in her memoirs later, she sort of retold her life story to try and make it better. And that's but, what I do. For death, but she for changed sure. her birth date from 1890 to 1892. <laughs> and I'm like, what difference is that going to make? If you're 40 or 42, you're still old. It's a big difference between 28 and 30. Don't I fucking know it? Yeah, you're 28. <laughs> But she did. And she was born in Paris and her dad was a taxi carriage driver. That's another one of the things she later embellished. She said that he was... Exactly. Be ambitious. No, she said he was a... He was a taxi driver with fluffy dyes. (laughs) Even that would have been cooler. She said solicitor's clerk. God, not even solicitor. Yeah, he, did. he wasn't even that clever. <laughs> I didn't like... want it to be unbelievable. Exactly. Um, she was a bit of a brat as a child. It said that she would have uncontrollable temper tantrums. Um, and now people would, you know, get her diagnosed, drugged up, sorted out. Uh, not that I advocate for that. Uh, but her parents, who were at the wit's end by the time she was nine, they had a more Shakespearean approach to it and said, get thee to a nunnery. Even the nuns couldn't handle her, though, and she was placed in service with a family. Um, But she was kicked out at 15 for getting pregnant. And she did have the child, which was a girl, but then she placed her daughter into care on a farm. I mean, I'm hoping that's not an embellishment, because it sounds like dog heaven. Like, yeah, she's gone to live on a farm, and it's going to be wonderful. Yeah. It's not, because they later got together, like, met up again when she was a little bit older. Then she ended up living on the street, and so she had no choice in, you know, late 1800s Paris, but to start selling herself. Luckily for her, there was a madam from a high-class brothel, where the clientele were the most rich and powerful people in the city. And these buildings would be so decadent, so sumptuous, like, they wanted to attract people from all over the world to these houses so they weren't any it wasn't like a british brothel the documentary it was fabulous and so she noticed that marguerite was really attractive she was quite bright so she took her under her wing and it was the sort of place where they expected the girls to be proper ladies so they gave her education they gave trained her in manners she could play the piano now she knew about politics so she could talk like a geisha who's entertaining and high status rather than 
a quick one bum thank you ma'am oh they still fuck them up real good right um it was well known it had a reputation for catering to every kind of taste you could imagine um but one of her speciality yeah one of her specialities was as a dominatrix it was a natural talent of her i feel like that is quite a talent because I don't think I'd be very good at it. I think you'd be quite good. Yeah, I thought it seems ideal for someone young, sort of working class, hot tempered. You get to beat up rich men and get paid for it. There's definitely a few people that I'd like to give a flogging to. Because most dominatrix- the whole cast of Made in Chelsea could take a beating from me. <laughs> but most dominatrixes don't do any sex, do they? They just order men around and they get off on that. I'm basically doing it for free. Just getting paid to be mean to man. It's brilliant. <laughs> so age 17, so she was very young when she started. Age 17, she had a relationship with a 40-year-old man called Andre Miller. He was the wealthy son of a wine merchant and he bought her an apartment of her own and wanted her as a kept woman. So she took to calling herself Madame Miller. I think it's supposed to be Miller. And she claimed they were married. And later when she was on trial for murder in the UK... Um, as Princess Marguerite Fami, the UK press would just call her Maggie Mella. Was she a real princess or did she just make that up as well? She was a semi-princess. They would just call her Maggie Mella in the newspapers because one of the purest national pastimes in Britain is taking the piss out of people's names, making them sound a bit shit. Yeah. So Andre Miller was already married anyway, so he was unable or unwilling to get out of it. So by 1913, she did manage to stand it for six years. They did split up. Um, She preferred to have multiple lovers in order to maximise her income. So she was often given expensive gifts, but she came up with the best scam that I think I've heard of, where she would have three, three to five different guys, and she would ask them very specifically for the same gift the same necklace, the same watch, the same coat. Oh, and she'd return four out of five. Yes. And get the money and then always be like, oh, you bought me this. That's brilliant. Exactly. I don't know why I've never thought of it before. No. Like sugardaddies.com is not going to know what's hit it. That's genius. I'm like, everyone, iPhone 7, please. So in 1917, Marguerite met one of the most influential clients in an arranged meeting at the Hotel de Crillon. It was soon to be Edward VIII, future King of England. Yeah, I'm looking at you like... He gathered that with the number of (laughs) Well, he wasn't king for long, if anyone's not sure. He's the... Edward VIII was the one who became king, and then... He's a Weasley one after Henry. He was in love with Wallace Simpson, and he abdicated. And then Queen Elizabeth, our current one, (gasps) her dad, took over. I mean, yeah, everyone tried to make him out like a baddie, but fuck it, if someone... Gave up the throne for you. Yeah. Amazing. But he just wanted to hang out as well, didn't he? He was like, yeah. Oh, yeah, he just wanted to fuck bitches. He called them bitches. He was a massive playboy. In letters to his friends, he would be like, ugh, all the bitches here are totally unfuckable. And I was really shocked to hear. I was like, I didn't think they would actually speak like that, but he did. So they met each other at this hotel. He was a young prince, um, only 25, and he was serving in the British Army. At the time, obviously, World War One had broken out. So he'd only just... He'd lost his virginity quite recently at 23 to a courtesan called Paulette. But she was the kept woman of another officer. They'd sort of... Dis- he'd loaned her, as they said, to him. So 
he decided that he needed a kept woman of his own and he wanted her to be French too. So I'm not a fan of this keeping women. Mm-mm. This is my woman. This is yours. No, not at all. But that's what these rich and powerful men at the time felt was that. I mean, it was it wasn't until 1918 because we're coming up to the 100 year mark. 1918 was when women got the vote, mm-hmm. so it was still they weren't really in control at this point. Yeah. Most of society agreed that they weren't in control. So he wanted someone experienced, discreet, and there's all sorts of accounts about Edward being very kinky. Something about his nanny spanking him while telling him she loved him as a child. Um, so it's thought that her dominatrix style really suited him. So he took her for a drive in his Rolls Royce. It's proper pimped out. You should look at pictures. And then back to her apartment. And in his diary, he... I mean... 25-year-old keeping it out as well. You know you're going to get caught out. This is what happens without TV. Imagine being immensely powerful and rich and people doing whatever you said throughout your early 20s. You couldn't help but being a twat, could you? Oh, of course. You just wouldn't have a choice. So, But in his diary, he said the three days that he spent with her initially in Paris, he describes them as blissful. And he said it made the realities of World War I seem even more bloody now. I mean, he's definitely a romantic. Yeah. So they continued to stay in touch, and every time he'd pass through Paris, they would hook up, and they would write copious amounts of letters to each other. So Edward was writing to his friends, and he said that the English tarts were nothing like the French ones, and that his woman in France wrote the most wonderful letters to him with three exclamation marks. So obviously... That means love. She was the big... That was the beginning of the sex text. She was giving him the most wonderful letters. Eventually, things cooled because Prince Edward began an affair with the wife of an English MP. However, all of this letter writing leaves someone in the royal family extremely vulnerable and the letters between Edward and Marguerite were said to contain complaints about the king and queen for the way they controlled his life as well as really intimate details of their sexual practices. And Marguerite could really cause a lot of trouble if she wanted to. Edward did write some letters to his attaché, complaining that she was trying to blackmail him, saying that she was writing letters to him, saying that she wanted money. But by the end of 1918, she still had hold of his letters, but she seemed to have given up. He didn't hear from her for a while. So Marguerite went to marry, went on to marry a man, um, Mr. Monsieur Laurent. Um, he was an extremely wealthy man who even let her daughter take his name and pay for her schooling but when she got that within six months she divorced him with a huge settlement and a yearly allowance paid to her so she continued to make her way up the ladder through paris high society until she met another prince prince ali farmi sounds like aladdin's prince name well very similar to aladdin in that he wasn't a real prince oh he was the son of a rich industrialist so he was definitely as rich as one. Like that wasn't fake, but they went. He said he, they gave himself the name, and this didn't stop her from calling herself princess for the rest of her life either. <laughs> so he asked her to marry him, which she agreed to, and she even went so far as to convert to Islam so that Ali wouldn't be disinherited for marrying a non-Muslim. Which I was like, brilliant. Yes, yeah, she can be a divorced sex worker just so long as she's Muslim. <laughs> In 1923. They went on their honeymoon to um, down the Nile. I love this fact. They went to visit Lord Carnarvon's dig of exhuming uh, Tutankhamun's 
Wow. Like just, oh, they just popped in on this That's amazing cool. moment in history. If you were around in 1980, oh, she just happened to date Prince Edward before he abdicated. Oh, she just happened to be at Lord Carnarvon's dig. Like she was, a, she's the Forrest Gump of Paris sex workers. <laughs> I hope the film, not the book. Have you read the book? No, I haven't. It's horrific. I really, does he still pop up at all major yeah, events? Too many. Okay, <laughs> it's the worst. Um, so the couple at this point were already not getting on well, and Marguerite wrote to her lawyer in Cairo to list her complaints about her husband. She described herself as being a prisoner on board the yacht and said that she had marks all over her arms from where her husband had grabbed her. So could they send someone to come and witness the marks and document it? So already she's trying to make a case against her husband. She said that she was regularly beaten and she took to sleeping with a pistol because she was in fear of her life. I mean, that's not going to help you. Sleeping next to a loaded weapon... I mean, he can grab it, surely. Yeah, the person who's awake can get it. (laughs) I'm just going to be asleep next to this incredibly dangerous object and unconscious. I want it right near my head so that if it (laughs) does accidentally go off, there's no chance. (laughs) So some people believe that story completely, that she was really mistreated. But her grandson, Raoul, still alive today, um, he was interviewed for a documentary and he said that he really just thinks it came down to a matter of money. That she was just, this was her plan. She'd done it with other men. This was just what she was doing. I mean, he might be her grandson, but surely he's just another person who wasn't alive at the time. He did, well... How does he know? She lived a really long time. He knew her quite well. Oh, right, fair enough. So in July 1923, so same year, but now in July, the couple came to London to stay in the Savoy Hotel for the summer season. Okay, fancy. So... Marguerite then asked to be examined by the doctor that was on hand for the hotel. She complained that she had painful hemorrhoids. Yeah, I laughed too. And then (laughs) went on to find out that the reason was she was saying that she had painful hemorrhoids because they were caused by her husband performing unconsensual unconsensual anal sex on her. I mean, that'll do it. So she wanted someone to come and give a certificate to prove her injuries and say this had happened. But, I mean, there's other reasons you might have painful hemorrhoids. Surely you could see evidence of trauma there as well, other than if it was true. Some people were uh, dismissed it and being like, well, as a French sex worker, obviously she would have been used to that kind of sex because obviously they didn't want to get pregnant. If you're getting raped, it's still not going to be good. You don't just get used to getting raped. No, like you can have anal sex a lot and still get raped and it'd be horrific. Yeah. I didn't yeah, I like, didn't see that as evidence. You had a lot of consensual sex, so therefore getting raped must have been easy for you. It doesn't work no. like that. So I don't like that argument at all. No. But I still don't necessarily think it was true. No. So by Friday, the night July the ninth, the pair continued to have really heated arguments and Marguerite said that she intended to go back to Paris. Ali then telegrammed some high-end shops around London to say that nothing should be given to his wife on credit or sent to the hotel room unless he'd asked for it or he was present. So even he had his suspicions that she was going to start trying to rinse the money while she could. Yeah. He then went out on the piss while she went to bed. When in doubt, go out with the lights. So, I mean, it wasn't that wild because 2am he arrived back at the hotel and a hotel night porter came across the couple shouting at each other in the corridor and asked them to go back into their room. Moments later, three gunshots were heard 
and Ali Fahmy was found slumped over and bleeding from wounds to the head. Shit. Marguerite was there and said in French, what shall I do? I've shot my husband. I lost my head. Chicago, Chicago. Exactly. Later in court, they tried to claim the translation of it was slightly different. And say, I said, um, I, I meant to say someone shot my husband. Yeah. The next day, as the news was breaking of the shooting at the Savoy Hotel, Prince Edward had been in London that night. Um, he would have immediately realised who it was and the danger to himself to be associated with it. Yeah. So that day he changed his plans, which were to do a tour of British towns and ran away to the magical land of escapees, Canada. <laughs> where Canada at the minute is where everyone's trying to get to. I don't yeah. know if it's that great. Marguerite was charged with murder and the trial began in September at the Old Bailey. So in Paris, because they're a little bit more romantic, she might have been able to use the defence of a crime of passion, which was a specific thing in France. But the only thing English people are passionate about is tea, football, and making sure nobody jumps a queue. Yeah. Do you know what annoys me? Is when people find ways to jump queues that that they can get away with. And that this is why we shouldn't have guns in England, because I get so hungry. But do you know when um, you're in a really long queue of traffic, There's a, on the way to work, there's this way that you, you get stuck in a long queue of traffic, and people can undercut you and then try and sneak in and get into your lane at the end. I'm like, fuck you! When I see people do it, it makes me so angry. And I that's my Britishness. That arrogance. Why do you think that what you need to do is more important than what I need to do? You don't know yeah. me. Fuck you. Yeah. I wouldn't tell you about me if you asked. Anyway, this wasn't a case of queue jumping. This is shooting your husband. So the British jury were not so impressed. But the case seemed completely open and shut. The night porter said that when he testified, he said that he'd heard the three shots. He said he'd seen her following her husband out of the room holding the gun. They also had experts who said that the gunshots, the gun was not semi-automatic or anything, so it would have been three very separate and distinct shots that she would have had to fire, saying it was sort of like an execution style. She couldn't have been done it by accidentally, just fired off a couple. Yeah. She did, however, have the services of one of the most renowned criminal lawyers of the time, Sir Edward Marshall Hall, and he decided that the best defence was a character assassination of Ali Fahmy. Yeah. So he really just played on the racism and the prejudice at the time and made out him to be, said, oh, yeah, he can have the trappings of a civilised man, but really he's just a primitive, brutal beast with his, you know, Eastern ways. He doesn't know how to treat Western women. He really played on that. Sad thing is, I'm sure there's still an element of that in our yeah, legal system. Yeah, I think now. they still will find it. So a key witness was Ali Fahmy's secretary, Saeed Anani, and he claimed that their arguments were always due to Marguerite's bad tempers and not that Ali's bad behaviour was causing them to fight. But in cross-examination, Hall decided fuck the facts, and started accusing Saeed of having a homosexual relationship with Ali. Basically saying, we know that he's really into anal sex. This is obviously because he's fucking you, and that's the only way he can have sex with his wife. And then homosexuality was illegal at the time, and it would definitely have led the jury to totally you know, mistrust any of his testimony. Just by putting it out there yeah. would make them have it in there. That's the thing with juries that you've got to say. As soon as you've put something out there, you can say, oh, scratch that. Yeah. But if they've heard it, it's in it's their in brain. Their mind, yeah. Also... 
the judge had ruled, so Marguerite did give some testimony, but the judge had ruled that the prosecution could not question her on anything or anyone before her relationship with Ali. So the jury would have no idea of her character. They were not allowed to know that she'd been a sex worker. They were not allowed to know that she'd been married and divorced twice before. They were not allowed to know about the affair with Prince Edward. So much relevant stuff comes from people's past and looking at their history. But, I mean, it's without a doubt, I think, this was done to prevent Prince Edward. They didn't yeah. really care about her. She had no, no stake no. in it. The judge would have ruled that because they didn't want the fact that yeah. Prince Edward had been involved with her to come out at well, all. Well, he might have got involved. And but it worked in her favour because yeah. the jury were convinced that she was this fine lady. I mean, she had all the airs and graces yeah. that she'd been taught in the brothels. So they were convinced she was a fine lady who was terrorised by a cruel husband with unnatural desires, as they thought of it. It only took them one hour, not only to find her not guilty of murder, but not guilty of manslaughter too. Oh shit, she just walked free? Completely. Like, we know you did it. I mean, how can you not find someone guilty of manslaughter? They kind of just said she's justified. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out that whilst remanded in custody, Marguerite had received several visits from a major Ernest Bald, who was an acquaintance of Marguerite and close friends with a man who was close friends with Prince Edward. And it's thought that he was acting as a go-between while she was in custody. Really, the issue here is to sort out the letters. Yeah. She hasn't said anything caught, but she could still use these. And now she's been involved in a murder trial. She might be more desperate. Andrew Rose is a man who was a barrister and he's since turned author and written a book about this. And he actually, when researching it, received evidence from a relative of Ali Farmy to say that Marguerite had given her letters between her and Edward to a high commissioner who was in Cairo at the time. And then three weeks before the trial, a man suspected to be this person travelled to England without reason. And then the day after his arrival in England, Edward interrupted his holiday at Balmoral in Scotland, drove to London, stayed one day, and then went back to his holiday in Scotland. Mm. It's pretty... You can pretty much infer that the letters were passed on. There was a deal made between Marguerite and Edward that she was going to get some preference treatment. The judge's ruling that she didn't have to talk about her character in exchange for the letters. Put them in the bin. So, Ali's family fought for many, many years to keep Marguerite from inheriting any money, but she did eventually receive a settlement in 1937. So, from 23 to 37, she was battling them to get his money. She lived a fabulous life in Paris. She had a gorgeous apartment. She was living on the settlements of five different lovers for the rest of her life, and it wasn't until 1971 that she died at the age of 80. Just loving life. Yeah. That's it. There's no real comeuppance for anyone in that story. Just this is a woman who did kill people. Yeah, and got away with that. Mm -hmm. I don't empathise with her, but then I don't condemn her. I'm very much ambivalent or apathetic. Don't give a shit. (laughs) Might not bother then. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Slaughter. If you would like to support the show, you can do that by following us on Twitter at SlaughterThePod and tweeting out about the shows that we release and put on there. You can join the Facebook group, Slaughter. Um, just type in Slaughter, it'll come up. And you can 
give some money to us on Patreon. Uh, we're saving, we're nearly there in terms of buying new microphones, but also we need other equipment. So any money that you give is really appreciated and will be going towards the podcast. And remember, listening to Slaughter doesn't make you a psycho, but killing people in the name of the devil kind of does. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.